This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm going to ask one more time for her to apologize, the Honorable Member, for Kildonan St. Paul. She's not going to apologize. Thank you. Ms. Dancho, I have to name you for disregarding the authority of the chair. Pursuant to authority granted to me by Standing Order 11, I order you withdraw from the House video conferences for the remainder of this day's sitting. And there was yesterday. Good afternoon, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. A lot to get to. Let's start with that. Yesterday in the House of Commons, Conservative MP Raquel Dancho was ejected from the House of Commons for accusing the government of lying about Bill C-21 and refusing to apologize. Question, though, what if the government actually is lying? Now, there's the bigger question whether the government's being honest about the changes to the bill. And I think they've been caught in this, that despite their insistence otherwise, Bill C-21 would indeed ban numerous hunting rifles and shotguns. But this was a more narrow accusation regarding testimony before the Public Safety Committee and the Liberals' intent to try to throw in a few more witnesses at the last minute. It's kind of going about it backwards, it feels. You make all of these changes to the bill, and then you go and get some consultation. Generally, consultation precedes the legislation. So where are things at on C-21? Well, joining us to talk about what happened yesterday, the broader debate around this bill, Bill, very pleased to welcome the program here, the aforementioned uh, member for Kildonan St. Paul in Manitoba, also Shadow Minister of Public Safety for the uh, Conservatives and Vice Chair of the Public Safety and National Security Committee, Member of Parliament Raquel Dansha joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ms. Dansha, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rob. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what do we need to know about what went down yesterday, first of all? Well, the, our, uh, the conservative member of parliament, he's from Alberta. His name is Dane Lloyd. He's also on public safety committee with me and is a fierce fighter for Canadian hunters and the tools they use. And he stood up and asked the government, the liberals, about the ASN, the association, or the Assembly of First Nations, pardon me, has come out in full opposition to Bill yeah. C-21. That's the, the bill that we've been talking about that is now going to be banning a series of hunting rifles and shotguns. He asked them about this legitimate development, and they decided to use that opportunity to take partisan cheap shots and uh, really lie about what's been going on at Public Safety Committee. And uh, what he, what the Liberal member said was that Conservatives are part of the problem. Now, what really fired me up is that it's been Conservatives that have been calling them out on their lies for the past three weeks since they under, uh, introduced this underhanded very sneaky amendment to ban all these hunting rifles and shotguns. And so to hear him say we're the problem when we're the party that from the beginning has standing, been standing up for lawful gun ownership and hunters and farmers and sports shooters and the like, uh, it just, you know, it's been a long three weeks and mm-hmm. uh, I got pretty fired up and that's what happened. So regarding the this, this letter between the other three parties, so the, the way I understand mm-hmm. it then, the Liberals want to try to throw in some, some last-minute testimony here. Uh, right. and, and they accused you of getting in the way of that, even though, from what I understand, you had no idea about this letter in the first place. 
Right. So they brought forward uh, a letter from the, the NDP, the Bloc, and Liberals are all working together on this. They brought forward this letter. We didn't know about it until it landed, uh, until it came forward officially. So we were never invited to the table. And what they're trying to do is force two additional committee testimony meetings. And you outlined this very well. That's supposed to happen way back when we were doing those the testimony phase of the legislative process. That's mm-hmm. all long been done, way before they introduced this hunting rifle and shotgun ban that bans a series of hunting rifles and shotguns. And so the idea that we can now go backwards uh, to fix their screw-up, the liberal screw-up, to now do two meetings, which really means about 12 people from across the country would get to come and give testimony about what the impact will be of this uh, hunting rifle ban. Uh, it's just, it's a bit of a joke. The idea that we can fix this with 12 people when that wouldn't even cover the, the indigenous groups that should be represented, let alone the hunting and angling associations and the wildlife conservation groups and the gun shops. And we, I can go on and on of the people who deserve to have their voices heard about this that would have had their voices heard if the Liberals had done their homework in the first place on this and gone across the country and consulted appropriately. But they denied Canadians that uh, opportunity. And so they, in sum, those three opposition parties, the three parties there, left us out of the discussion and then got up in the House and said that we were part of the problem when we've never been part of that discussion. They never invited us to the table. So that was a lie. It's interesting where we're at at the moment because it, it seemed at one point that the government was just going to press ahead and, and maybe try to, to ram this bill through. Uh, the fact that now they are attempting to go in this different direction, they're, they're mm-hmm. changing the language, I guess, uh, uh, around their intent and what these amendments actually do. What does that tell you about where things are at right now? Well, I think that they're, again, I think they're, their actions speak volumes. So they did this in a very sneaky and underhanded way. You're not supposed to introduce... Uh, something of this magnitude when all the when all the testimony and debate has already happened. Uh, you're not supposed to change the scope of the bill. The original bill is, supposed to, is that handgun ban, or the handgun freeze, as they've called it, which is really a ban. Right. Uh, that's what the bill is about. So to introduce a massive ban on long guns is, uh, is inappropriate at this stage, but they did it anyway. And so the idea that now we can go, that we have to go and fix the underhanded and sneaky maneuver the liberals are doing and they're acting like they're doing this in good faith is laughable and so there's just been so many lies and for the last three weeks the liberals have called conservatives spreading misinformation we're fear-mongering this isn't a hunting rifle ban they say but yet there's been thousands of hunters and farmers and others who've reached out to their liberal mps and ndp and block and conservative etc saying I'm seeing my legitimately owned hunting rifle on this list. This is a hunting rifle ban. So it's really backfired. And now they're scrambling to want the public to try to make the public think that they're being reasonable when really they're just repeatedly using sneaky and underhanded tactics to ultimately uh, remove a series of legitimate hunting rifles and shotguns from uh, the homes of farmers and hunters. Well, yeah, it seems like they've gone from from saying, no, this doesn't ban hunting rifles to now Mm -hmm. changing the words to saying it's not our intent to ban hunting rifles. But the practical reality as it stands now, this legislation would still do that, correct? That's very much correct. And again, this is this is the largest. Uh, the largest, like we're calling it an assault, the largest assault on hunters and those who use these tools legitimately in Canadian history. And that is a factually correct statement. There are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of models that will be prohibited now as a result of this sneaky 11th hour amendment they've put in. So two, the idea that two meetings is going to fix that is offensive, frankly. 
So is, is it likely then that this amendment changes or how do, how do you see them trying to work their way out of this? Because the opposition is building. You mentioned yeah. the, the AFN. That's significant opposition to this legislation. Yeah. It feels like they're trying to find a way out here. If, if that's the case, what might that look like? Yeah, they're being very disingenuous. So the, the amendment is quite complicated. There's two parts. Part one, we'll call it, uh, lists a bunch of different definitions that would make various uh, firearms illegal. And then part two is a very, very long list of firearms that will be illegal. And so the problem is, is that that list is not, even though it's uh, devastating to many hunters and farmers and the like, that's not an exhaustive list. There are thousands of more models, as we're finding out, that are not on that list that will be on that list, that will be prohibited just by part A by the definition, which is very broad. So it's a bit complicated, but what the prime minister has said, he's the list that's out there, again, that's not exhaustive, there's thousands of more firearms that are that are that that will be on there. What he has said is, well, we're open to looking at the existing list and we may make some exemptions for the most popular firearms that are used for hunting. But the problem is that's very disingenuous because they, when they brought this forward, they said, These are weapons of war designed for killing people. So the idea that that's how they're framing these legitimate tools that hunters use and farmers and the like, but then saying, oh, but we'll let you keep the most popular ones. Well, which one is it? Are they weapons of war or are they hunting rifles? They can't be both. You can't say that they should all be banned except the most popular and we'll keep those in wide circulation. So it's very disingenuous. And I've lost all trust for this government. Uh, what I see here is a very big first step to really laying out their full intentions, which I do believe, ultimately, as the years go by, they will, I believe, uh, look to ban all lawful gun ownership. I do believe that's the ultimate goal of this government. It might, won't be today, but this is now the third gun grab, so to speak, in two and a half years. So it's going very quickly. So what is it going to look like in 10 years? I don't know. Well, it seems to me as if they, they like playing this political card. I don't think they'd ever want sure. to get to a situation where they don't have that card to play. I mean, that, that would be my read on it. But you mentioned something interesting and what the government might try to do here, and I don't see how, how they can, can do it, to maintain the definition as it stands right now. Their, their definition of assault-style weapon that actually encompasses numerous hunting rifles. They're going to keep that definition, and then they're just going to arbitrarily take certain right. firearms off That's that right. list? right. But again, they're defining these as no one should own them, but we'll let you keep the most popular ones. That doesn't make any sense. So what what I think they're going to do, if I can make a prediction here, they're going to bring forward a list of some popularly owned ones and say, look, see, we listened and we're, we're, we're fighting for hunters and farmers too. And then they're just going to go on and keep doing this. And that'll be their one talking point. Well, we listened and we were reasonable when really they'll come for those eventually, in my opinion. Uh, and it doesn't uh, doesn't help the tens of thousands of other hunters and farmers who didn't get on that exemption list but have had the firearms in their families for generations. So it's um, it's just a, bit, a very disingenuous way to approach this. And you're right. They have used firearm ownership as a political wedge in a number of the last elections. It's a very effective move for them. But what I have seen in the last three weeks alone, and this is just starting, we're just getting going, is a shift in the conversation uh, for the first time in quite some time, so really since the long gun registry days. And uh, now that they've come after Indigenous hunters and hunters and farmers and the like, it really has set a bit of a different tone, and the Conservatives have made real strides in uh, bringing truth to this and really uh, bringing the Liberal lies to the forefront. And so that's really 
that came to a, a, a head yesterday in the House of Commons when I lost my cool a little bit, which I will say I did withdraw my comments when the Speaker asked me, uh, but then he asked me to apologize, and I refused to do that, and that's why I was kicked out. So I, I just... I don't believe that you should be backing down from the truth, and I stand by what I did, and I'm glad I withdrew, but I was not about to apologize for calling out the lies I've been hearing for three weeks. So where does this all go from here? Well, we're looking at the list, and again, what we found, it was just this week that we confirmed with the officials at committee that, in fact, this list is not exhaustive. So the a uh, couple hundred firearms that people are really upset about that are on that list, it's not exhaustive. There are thousands of more that aren't listed that are being banned. So when hunters and the like find that out, it'll be a continued groundswell. So what we're trying to do is ensure that everyone who's impacted by this, everybody who cares about the hunting culture, sport shooting, the like in this country needs to be made aware of what the Liberals are doing. Because again, this is the largest uh, gun ban in Canadian history. And so we're looking to spread the words. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your program today. We want to make sure Canadian voices are represented because the Liberals stole that opportunity from them uh, by introducing this amendment at the 11th hour in the most underhanded way possible. So I'm going to keep fighting. And we do plan to do a series of town halls across the country and ensure that um, we give Canadians the opportunity they deserve to speak up and have their voices heard on this. Yeah, Well, I know many of our listeners are following all of this closely, so I do appreciate the update. Ms. Dancho, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Rob. Have a All good best. day. You as well. Uh, Raquel Show, Conservative MP, Gildone in St. Paul. That's in Manitoba. Uh, she's the party's shadow minister for public safety and also is the vice chair of the Public Safety and National Security Committee. So she's been doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting on this bill for the opposition. And, you know, she says maybe lost her cool a bit in, in the House of Commons yesterday. I, I get why the rule is there. You know, you want to to police the sort of language used in the House of Commons. And, and to accuse members of lying, it's a serious accusation. But what if it's warranted, I guess, is kind of the dilemma here. Because the rule as it's written is almost like a shield for the government in a way in terms of the debate. Where they can lie, but then if the opposition tries to say, hey, those guys are lying, like they're the ones in trouble. So maybe that needs to change. Hey, good afternoon. Happy Friday, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you as we head into the weekend. A lot to get to in this hour. I want to begin off the top, though, with the latest on Bill C-11, which began life as Bill C-10, but is essentially the latest iteration of the government's attempts to modernize the Broadcasting Act, they say. Now, here on this radio station, we are broadcasters, owned by broadcasters. We are regulated as broadcasters under the CRTC. Now, broadcasting itself has changed. What constitutes a broadcaster might warrant a different answer because certainly we compete with other platforms, Netflix, YouTube, Amazon, Spotify. Are those broadcasters? Well, the government thinks so. And so C11 is their attempt, maybe an awkward and clumsy attempt to make it that way. But this has caught the attention of users of the internet and these platforms. And it's become a big deal, so much so I even had my teenage son ask me, <laughs> no word of a lie the other day, what is Bill C-11? He obviously saw or heard something about it. But there's some legitimate concerns about how this would all work and the idea that the CRTC is not just regulating these platforms, but regulating the people that post to them. You could make an argument maybe that YouTube is a broadcaster, but are the YouTubers, people creating videos and content, are they broadcasters? Do we really need the CRTC regulating individual users? Now, the government is trying to reassure everybody that that wasn't the intent of the bill. 
but certainly would seem to be the impact, whether it's their intent or not. Enter the Senate. The bill passed the uh, parliament and is now before the Senate. It's voted on uh, in the House, is before the Senate. The Senate has uh, proposed, and I believe voted on, a, a pretty important amendment here to ensure that individual users, content generators, are not going to fall under the scope of this. Well, joining us to talk about this surgical amendment, as she had called it, uh, Paula Simons joins us, independent senator from the great province of Alberta. Paula, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. You know, Rob, I always love talking to you. So I am delighted to be back with you on this <laughs> well, I appreciate Friday. That. I, I do indeed. Um, well, it's great to have you with us here. And I, look, I think this is an important issue. Like I say, if, if my teenage son is, is heard about it and is asking me about it, I mean, it's it must be a pretty big deal. So where are things at, first of all, in terms of uh, this being before the Senate and going back to the House then at some point? Well, everybody else is waiting for Santa Claus. We've been engaged in clause by clause. Mm-hmm. And our... Senate uh, Transportation and Communications Committee has literally been working overtime to get this bill uh, through the the amendment stage, which we call clause by clause. And so we have voted on in committee, uh, and the committee has agreed on 25 amendments to the Act, which is quite a few. Some of them are very small. They fix things like translation errors or what's obviously garbled language, because the bill came out of the House so quickly that some of the amendments that were added in the House didn't make any sense. So we had to do some housekeeping and correction work. But we have also passed some really substantive amendments. And I think one of the ones that's gotten the most attention is one that I worked on together with my Quebec colleague, Julie Mazot-Duchen. It's what we call our our surgical approach to the clause of the bill that has sort of created the most controversy. Mm -hmm. And this was the exception to the exception clause. Because Bill C-11 says very clearly in its opening language that it does not cover users of social media. And then when you got down to Section 4.2.2, there was an exemption to the exemption that said that you could be considered uh, under the ambit of the bill if you generated content directly or indirectly. Well, that's almost every person who's dabbled, you know, if you have enough YouTube visitors, if you're an Instagram influencer, um, if, you know, if you're a, a TikTok influencer, you could be generating revenues directly or indirectly. Yeah. And so this created, I don't want to say panic. Panic is an unkind word for it, but consternation sure. amongst especially uh, the, the most successful users of digital platforms. And so Julie and I and our staff, and I, I want to say this isn't something that I dreamt out, out of my own head. This was very much a, a collaborative uh, project. We came up with wording that we think fixes the problem that the government had and exempts social media users. Uh, yeah, and I, I think I used the phrase a surgical amendment because, you know, some people had said, well, let's just get rid of the whole section. And I knew the government would never accept that because they were very concerned about – they say that their big concern is big commercial users of YouTube. So people who are using YouTube like Warner Brothers and Sony to distribute music in competition with Spotify. Or you know, they're worried about people using YouTube to rebroadcast whole commercial programs. So we think – we think we have structured an amendment – that exempts social media users, even the commercial ones, but scopes in 
the big commercial broadcasters and music producers who are using YouTube as a vector to distribute their, their commercial content. Right. So based on what the government has said about the intent of this bill, presumably or theoretically, they, they shouldn't object to this amendment. Is that fair to say? Well, I hope, I hope not. I mean, you know, in all honesty, um, Senatrice Mazel uh Julie and I worked very hard to come up with what we thought was a workable compromise. You know, and I was talking to people, you know, my, my staff and I were talking to YouTube and TikTok, and Julie and her staff were talking to independent Quebec music producers. Uh, and it's really in Quebec some of the hardest push for C11 has been in place. We think that working together, an Albertan and a Quebecer, um, you know, we're, we're good friends. We're both former journalists. Julie was a reporter with Radio Canada for years, and then the Radio Canada ombudsperson. So we understand broadcasting, and we understand, you know, the, we understand what it means to be Albertan and, and Quebecois. Yes. So we think that working together, we have come up with an amendment that should be palatable to the government and might allow them to save face. You know, this is this is always the trick in the Senate. If you just delete whole sections or put in amendments that you know the government will never accept, all you've really done is waste everybody's time. What we wanted to do was to come up with pragmatic amendments that would make the bill substantively better, would still allow the government to achieve its aims and not um, prejudice our online creators. And you heard from some of those online creators uh, during the, the testimony phase of all oh, yeah. of this. What did you hear that, that really compelled you or convinced you that, that this was necessary? You know, I think that even I, you know, I think I think I know everything about social media because for years I've been the queen of Twitter. But of I was stunned by the degree of, of income and revenue that certain big um, YouTubers and um, uh, people using TikTok – we're actually making it. They were making a, a you know a significant living doing this, mm-hmm. and the kind of artistry and creativity, and you know this wasn't just if one more person said cat videos, I was going to sick my dog on them. We're not talking about cat videos. We're talking about very sophisticated people doing um, doing uh, video and musical uh, productions on YouTube and Twitter and TikTok and you know forging a new kind of uh, creative ecosystem. And I was really concerned because we heard from people who were not lighting their hair on fire. We heard from people like Stuart Reynolds, a brittle star. People will know him from yeah. social media. We heard from people who, who have had substantive careers doing comedy, doing video, doing music. And as traditional broadcasting... I mean, it pains me to say this, Rob, as we're talking on the radio, as traditional broadcasting um, is in a time of eclipse, we want to be really certain that we don't accidentally stifle the best of Canadian uh, creativity that is flourishing uh, and, and blossoming all over these new platforms. At the same time, I think it's also fair to say that we want to make sure that these Big American companies are not just squashing Canadian creators either. So you, you need to create an ecosystem where the Canadians are protected 
from exploitation by the platforms, but also protected from ham-handed regulatory blunders by the government. And I really hope that this amendment, as one, as I say, a package of 25 amendments, uh, I think we have substantively improved the act in many key places. You know, there's been so much misinformation and disinformation about the act. So I want to I want to put on the table here really clearly: there is nothing in this bill that allows the government to take down your tweets or censor your YouTube. Mm-hmm. It was never about that. What it was about was a concern that you might force, you know, smaller creators to have to follow all the CanCon rules and fill out all the forms and, you know, worry about whether algorithms were going to prejudice their chances of being seen by kind of keeping them in a Canadian ghetto. Um, We haven't fixed all the problems, but we've fixed quite a few of them. Now, the the senator with whom you partnered on this amendment, now she was also involved in another amendment, and and without getting too far down this rabbit hole, but um, a proposal to add mandatory age verification requirements for sites with um, adult content. I know some privacy concerns have been raised there. Yeah, I oppose oppose that amendment, as you'll you'll maybe know. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, Julie, she's my, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm a grade five girl, but she's my best friend in the Senate, <laughs> okay. and we get we get on really well. But she has been a, um, I guess, a, she she comes from a, a kind of second wave feminist tradition of real opposition to pornography, mm-hmm. and so she's worked very hard on a number of different uh, private bills as well as this legislation to try to put in age verification. Uh, to, that people have to prove they're over 18 to look at pornography online. I don't think that's a workable idea. I think, to be blunt, there's too much pornography online. Right. And I'm really concerned about the facial recognition software that many platforms are using for age verification, um, that it is not sensitive to racial difference, that it may be prejudicial to people who are LGBTQT, um, uh, you know, or just frankly allow platforms to gather a lot of your private information. This is a point of passion for Julie, and uh, I suspect the government will take this amendment out, and I think she knows that, but she wanted to make a point that is, you know, it's it's a real... Uh, it, it's it's a cause she's been devoted to for much of her working life. I think you know I I don't I don't share that same paradigm. I don't share that same view. I voted against the amendment, um, and uh, you know, and and we hugged after. Well, that's good. And and no, I mean, I, I would come down on the same side as you on this. Um, so so what now? The Senate isn't quite finished with this yet, correct? No. So we've done. We've done most of the heavy lifting, but now the bill as amended has to go to the Senate for third reading debate. So um, we're not going to be able to finish that next week. So we're going to pick that up when we come back. In fact, we're going to come back a week earlier than usual at the end of January to get this bill finally done and dusted. Um, So we will have third reading debate the last week in January, first week in February. Um, some people may try to propose some more amendments then. It's much harder to amend the bill at third reading, but it's not impossible. Uh, and then we send it back to the House of Commons, and then it will be up to the government to decide which of our amendments to keep, 
which of our amendments to, to throw out and which of our amendments they might want to rework. They have many, many more lawyers on staff uh, than we have in our Senate offices. I mean, Judy and I don't. Uh, yeah. I, I think, you know, she has the services of one part-time lawyer. But, you know, we are not experts in legislative drafting. So sometimes the Senate proposes an amendment and the government says, well, okay, we see what you're trying to get at, but we will rewrite it to accomplish more or less the same thing. But we're better at legislative drafting than you are. So that's always a possibility, too, that they might accept the idea of our amendment, but but rework it to make themselves, you know, feel like it was their idea. So uh, and then. Then comes, then comes the acid test. They send the bill back to us, and then the Senate has to decide whether we accept the bill they return to us or whether we send it back to them again and say, no, nope, not good enough, take another, take another crack at it. Okay, so this could have some more twists and turns yet, but I think at least a positive development uh, in this debate with this uh, surgical amendment. Uh, Senator Paula Simons, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Always love to be a guest, Rob. Take care. Bye-bye. You as well. Take care. Uh, there you go. Alberta Senator Paula Simons talking about Bill C-11. I didn't want to panic her anymore. <laughs> it was just, I, mean, I just kept thinking. We, we talked about C-21 the other day, the gun bill, and how the liberals might get out of this mess they created for themselves. And I forget who we were talking to and said, well, you know, one option would just be to prorogue parliament. And then that bill would die on the order paper. But so would all of these other bills. <laughs> you imagine spending countless hours going clause by clause through this C-11 and proposing and debating amendments, and then the government just comes along and nukes everything. Anyway, so, yeah, marking uh, an improvement to the bill for sure. We'll see what comes of all of that. As you heard during the newscast, uh, the Keystone Pipeline, which runs from Canada down to the U.S., has been uh, partially shut down. As a result of a leak uh, within the state of Kansas, a considerable leak, at least in the context of this pipeline and previous incidents, maybe the biggest it's experienced. Uh, so the pipeline has been uh, shut down as they attempt to deal with it. But given that this is an important pipeline, shutting it down could have some consequences. Right. It's being used. It's being used heavily. So what's the impact of it being out of commission? Now, a lot of that's going to depend on how long this lasts. And at this point, sitting here today, we don't quite know. But joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what impact this is already having, what impact this could have in the days and weeks ahead. Somebody's watching the situation closely. Commodity analyst Rory Johnston joins us, founder of Commodity Context Newsletter, commoditycontext.com. Rory, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Okay, well, I think, you know, people are familiar, obviously, with Keystone XL, the pipeline that didn't happen. Of course, there's the the Keystone pipeline, which has been operating for some time between Canada and the U.S. First of all, how important is this Keystone pipeline? So it's it's one of the largest pipelines out of Western Canada, uh, and, and it's a critical link both between uh, Alberta heavy oil and specifically, all, you know, heading all the way down south and connecting into the Gulf Coast. Uh, where we're typically kind of uh, netbacks and heavy oil prices are stronger. So it's always been a huge priority to fill this line and get those barrels as, as, as far south the U.S. Gulf Coast as possible. Uh, for context, the line is about, give or take, 600,000 barrels a day of flow, most of that heavy oil. Um, and we actually have seen um, you know, leaks on this line before, I think. So, it, you know, it brings back flashbacks, for, particularly for myself, uh, to late 2017 when the line leaked. And you saw a shutdown of the two weeks plus another couple of months of, of reduced operating volume that in many ways kind of pre-filled 
Alberta inventory tanks and set the stage for those big differential blowouts we saw in 2018, first in February and then later in October. Um, as of right now, it still seems that that doesn't seem like the likely scenario, but I think it is a risk that people need to consider. Uh, and the reason for that is that if this if this outage is as long as that again, we're talking about you know upwards of a you know you know seven eight million barrels of uh, a total crude that'll get backed up in Alberta and fill yeah. inventories again. We also saw another leak like that in October uh, 2019. So there actually has been a, a decent number of leaks now, which I think is is a bit of a bit of a black eye for the company in operation at this stage. Well, that's true. Now, what's your sense of how big this is? I mean, it, it seems like maybe it's it's a little bit bigger than we initially understood. Yeah, exactly. So just to put in perspective again, um, this is this is all latest data from uh, TC Energy, the operator of or what used to be known as TransCanada, the operator of the Keystone Pipeline. Um, as of right now, uh, we don't have a lot of information from them uh, via their kind of direct statements, but we, what we do know thus far is they're estimating the leak at about 14,000 barrels, which was larger than both of those previous spills. And depending on the estimate that you're using, both of those are probably between the, the ballpark of five to 9,000 barrels. So this is kind of substantially larger, uh, which could be a sign that it could take longer to clean up. But again, we, we don't know enough yet to really uh, you know, handicap that. Um, but on the flip side, the other things that do complicate this is that this leak is closer to a body of water than those previous two leaks, which could kind of further, um, you know, uh, elongate the time that it takes, uh, both for environmental remediation and for regulators to approve a restart of the line. Now, in terms of the impact on, on prices, there's there's kind of those two factors where taking supply out of the mix could drive up the price, uh, maybe on the WTI side. But obviously, then, if uh, oil's getting back uh, backed up in Alberta, we can't move it. That could suppress the price of Western Canadian select. So could it have those two opposite effects? Where on the one hand, it's increasing prices. On the other, it's it's lowering them. I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and even more specifically, one of the things that's really interesting this year is that the WCS differential has been notably wide, you know, on a, on a hardesty basis, has been above or, or wider than $30 a barrel multiple times this year. But that's actually amidst no pipeline constraints uh, and is entirely being driven by this reduced price and value of heavy crude in and around the Gulf Coast, mostly because there's too much high sulfur fuel oil floating around the world right now because of all the refining bottlenecks we're seeing. So, you know, what we're moving from now is, is the, you know, turning off that line is going to tighten heavy oil balances in the Gulf Coast. So it's going to improve the quality related issues. But at the same time, the barrels of Canadian crude that would normally get to benefit from that are now blocked away. So I totally agree. I think what we're likely going to see if this lasts any longer than a quick minute here is we're going to see, uh, you know, differentials for WCS uh, down around Houston improve for any barrel that can get that far. Yeah. And then the differentials in Hardesty kind of worsen. So eventually this will drive, you know, if this continues, it will drive a reemergence of uh, crude by rail transport, which is something that we just haven't needed and haven't seen in the past year, in the past couple of years now. Yeah, you're right. Now, at least for now, we haven't seen a lot of movement. Last I checked, uh, West Texas Intermediate was right around $71 a barrel, and Western Canadian Select was about $20 uh, lower, at around 51 So it might it take, you know, into next week or later to really start to see some, some movement or at least the impact of this? Yeah, exactly. As I'm looking on my screen right now, I'm seeing uh, WCS differential versus WTI in Cushing at about $27.70. So that's called 28 bucks, yeah. And that's in Hardesty. Um, the, the beginning of yesterday morning when this news was first released, that differential blew out to about 31 or 30, 
$33 a barrel, give or take, wow. uh, but that has eased back. So I think what we're seeing so far is the market not getting ahead of itself on, on how bad this could get. But I think you have seen during that time, you have seen hardesty differentials worsen. Well, at the same time, you've seen uh, Houston differentials down at the Gulf Coast improve. How does this factor into the bigger picture in North America and what we're seeing right now in terms of production levels? Yeah, so I mean, it, you know, it, it, it really all depends, again, on how long this lasts. If this mm-hmm. lasts a week, you'll just see some inflating of inventories in Alberta, and eventually this will clear itself and then move back to where we started. If this lasts two-plus weeks, like those prior outages, and you have a period of reduced pipeline capacity after that, as you're basically testing and making sure everything's working well, then you could see kind of bottlenecking back into Alberta. Now, it doesn't seem likely that the companies would voluntarily shut in barrels, but this is the kind of situation where you actually got the discussions initially from the, from the Nolly government around curtailment. So, I, again, I think we're not at that stage yet because we have more pipeline capacity with Line 3 having come on. Right. We're still expecting uh, capacity to come online uh, with the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, whether it's going to be later next year or early 2024. And finally, I do think that part of what really drove those differentials exceptionally wide in 2018 was the fact that we hadn't ever needed that much oil by rail to clear the basin before. Um, so when you eventually did need it, the oil by rail wasn't there quickly enough. So I think, you know, I hope that people are trying to look at this at the market right now and say, like, OK, we just make, we need to make sure that their oil by rail is ready. Should those differentials widen to a stage where it pays for that higher level of, or the higher cost? transportation source. Well, how quickly can companies make that pivot? I mean, this is an open question. Um, uh, you know, in the past, you know, you were able to see it in, in a matter of weeks. Um, but again, I think it's it's an open question as to how many of those tank cars have been left and kind of, you know, um, uh, locomotives and crews are available right now, given that you have also seen kind of, you know, rolling um, uh, bottlenecks in all sorts of transportation sectors. So, I, you know, it's really hard to get precise data on exactly what the what the effective capacity available is. And we're only going to really know over the next couple of weeks if that deferential widens and we see those rail, um, those rail, rail volume shipments start to rise. And we do get weekly data from both CP rail and CN rail, which I'll be looking, I'll be watching closely along with those WCS differentials to see if those rise together. All right. Well, we'll see how that all plays out. In the meantime, much more is mentioned. CommodityContext.com. Rory, I always appreciate the insight and analysis. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Well, there you go. That's uh, analyst Rory Johnston, founder of Commodity Context Newsletter, commoditycontext.com. So some interesting uh, insight into, you know, the potential impact of all of this, maybe not considerable just yet. But look, I mean, it's a pretty important pipeline. <laughs> when you take it out of commission, then, you know, that's that's not a good thing. So hopefully they can get this uh, back up and running fairly soon. By the way, I wanted to mention this, at least in the context of China, as we'll be discussing in a moment. The RCMP today announcing that it's suspending a communications contract with an Ontario-based company that has ties to China. Spokesman for the police force confirmed to Global News late Thursday it has suspended the contract with Sinclair Technologies, which designs and manufactures communications uh, programs, products. Uh, They were going to provide radio frequency equipment uh, to the RCMP, but their connections to China became a, a... a big source of concern and so for now that contract is on hold so this doesn't necessarily speak directly to canada's china policy and china strategy but it speaks to some of the many issues that we have to navigate here when it comes to china now we are starting to see at least the the signs of some change here in terms of the newly announced indo-pacific strategy 
you know, the decision the government made on Huawei uh, and some other indications that maybe the government's strategy is starting to shift. So how significant is this? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Ross O'Connor, former National Security Advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and a postgraduate researcher at Laval University. An interesting piece this week up at thehub.ca. Ross, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being. Thanks for having me on. Well, we appreciate making some time for us here today. So in terms of how meaningful some of this change or talk of change is, what's your read on the situation, first of all? Uh, well, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, there's been, uh, I think, uh, an awakening in the Trudeau government. They started off pretty pretty enthusiastic about China, uh, thinking, you know, we could uh, we could be nice to them and they'd be nice back. and. Mm-hmm. And if, they're, if, we, if we're nice to them, they'll buy our products in bulk and uh, that'll supercharge the Canadian economy. It'll raise all boats and uh, things will just be awesome. And, and then they sort of figure it out, well, maybe maybe they're trying to not, they're not as nice as we thought they were. They're kind of trying to play us for a fool here. Uh, that really came on strong uh, when they went to China in 2017, thinking they were about to sign a free trade agreement. Uh, they got embarrassed. Canada got embarrassed pretty pretty solidly there. And then, of course, uh, when Michaels, uh, Kovrig, and Spavor uh, were basically held hostage, well, then that was that was a real rude awakening. And and after that, you could see that the tone started to change. And so, uh, my take is that the tone uh, they've they've taken stock in that. Obviously, uh, I would just like to see that take hold. You know, I'd like to see that last. Right. But I, I think maybe it's fair to say the, the, the previously held illusions about what a relationship with China could be, uh, that, that those have been cast aside. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would think so in the minds of many. But I think uh, there's still two camps on this. There is the camp, uh, the one that you just described, that thinking, all right, you know, they're, they're not our friends and uh, they are competitors, strategic competitors. We've got to be uh, really, really wide-eyed, uh, clear-eyed about that. And there's that other camp that still exists that says, oh, we could just, you know, if we're just a little, a little nice to them, and they'll uh, they'll buy a whole lot of our products. Uh, they still they still exist. And so those are the two camps that are struggling for uh, supremacy right now in Ottawa, and I think in the general thinking uh, writ large. But a whole lot of us have, have come. I think if you look at the public polling, uh, 82% of the people of Canada think. China is now like a, a strategic competitor and is not to be fully trusted in that sort of way. And so there has been an awakening, but uh, there, those, those two camps are still fighting it out. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So with that as the backdrop, we saw recently the uh, new Indo-Pacific strategy, which certainly seems to build on the idea that maybe we need to, to look elsewhere for trade partners. We need to, to build other relationships in the region to sort of counter China. So this feels like it's significant, at least in terms of what it represents, but how, how meaningful is this new strategy specifically? It's meaningful in the sense that we now have a, a clear direction where we want to go. Uh, this was done by some arm twisting by Washington uh, because we need to pick a side here. This is what it really comes down to. Uh, we've been trying to have it both ways, sort of saying, oh, we can be friends with China and be friends with the U.S. and and uh, sort of played both sides of the street. But we've got to pick a side. And this document says, yes, and we've now chosen a side. Uh, China has been perturbing uh, in Canada and uh, 
we've got to uh, we've got to understand that they're not being our friends here. So we've decided to pick a side. I think that that's a good thing. Now we've got to make sure we've just got to keep going in that direction to make sure we don't backslide into the old sort of ways where we think we can just show a little deference to China and they'll buy our products in bulk because that's uh, that's something that some people have called fool's gold. And I'd be one of those people. What about the relationship with uh, the United States? And, you know, it appears as though I think there's recognition here that, look, that's that's where our, our alliances need to lie. This is our, our security partner. But have we done any damage to that relationship at all in recent years? I don't think we've done any long-term damage. Uh, we've certainly done a little bit of damage. Uh, the current government... Uh, the current government does have a strong, or it has sections inside the government that have a strong anti-American streak, uh, that which makes it disinclined to act on China. But at the same time, I mean, we we can't compare the U.S. to any of our other other partners. I mean, we've we've outsourced our defense policy to the U.S. It's it's eighty percent of our trade. It will always be most of our trade. I mean, it's just not something we can compare with other countries. So. There are other countries in the Asia Pacific. Uh, I'm thinking of Japan specifically. I'm, th- I'm thinking of South Korea specifically, and maybe even Vietnam, where we have a lot of common interests, uh, where we should be uh, building stronger bridges too. But when it comes to the U.S., uh, it all depends who you talk to. We have obviously a love-hate relationship with that country. We've, uh, but I think we should uh, we should recognize the importance of it. Because if we don't do that, uh, the the idea of hedging against uh, uh, the U.S. with China has proven to be utterly bankrupt. Right. Uh, so we've just got to sometimes get over our our, our psychological anti-Americanism and, and realize this is this is our most important partner, and we've got to get that one right. So, for at least starting to to point things in the right direction, what's the next step here? What what more would you like to see from the government? Well. Next step, I think we've we've gotten some good things done uh, in the strategy that talks about things like increasing military relationships in the Asia Pacific, uh, security, uh, cybersecurity networks, enhanced intelligence. We made a great announcement uh, last uh, last summer where we said we'd be improving our NORAD uh, defenses, and then sadly, in the latest uh, budget update. Uh, that was less announced. It said we'd be pushing those back four years down the road. Uh, that's unfortunate. So uh, modernizing our, our military infrastructure that has to do with common defense, things like NORAD, things like perhaps some submarines like the the, the Australians have recently uh, cut a deal with the U.S. on. Those would be really good ways of, of securing Canada, securing Fortress North America, and helping out with our allies in uh, the Asia-Pacific. Much more, as mentioned, uh, your piece is up at thehub.ca. Ross, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Likewise, all the best. Uh, Ross O'Connor, as mentioned, a former national security advisor to the prime minister, uh, former prime minister Stephen Harper, postgraduate researcher at Laval University. His piece up at thehub.ca. And now we're starting to see some positive signs. Says Canada's China strategy is all bark and no bite, but at least we're making some noise. So the hope that we don't backslide into that business-as-usual mindset. So things need to change, and at least there's some positive indication that that's what's happening right now.
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.